Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. The B is out of the hive. Welcome to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, supported by great listeners like Grant Gibson, Jeannie Richards, and Mark Liskard. I thank you for your support. And if you'd like to help, it's much appreciated. Just go to my website, peterbcollins.com. On the right-hand side, there's the tab that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. And this is Tell-A-Friend Month. I hope that you will spread the word. Just grab your email list and send it to five or ten friends and link them up to peterbcollins.com. We're trying to grow our audience with your support. This is part two of the podcast series based on interviews conducted at the Sabeel Conference in California on March 5th and 6th. And before I run down the lineup of today's program, I want to update you. In the preceding podcast, I noted that over the weekend, uh, representatives of Palestinians and the Fatah movement had agreed to uh, a U.S.-mediated peace talk, indirect peace talks with Israel. And based on that, Vice President Joe Biden arrived in Israel, and I hinted that the Palestinian concessions were one-sided. Well, not only has Israel failed to make a good-faith effort to match that move by the Palestinians, they have angered the Obama administration and Vice President Biden with the announcement that they say was coincidental that they're planning to build 1,600 new housing units on disputed lands in East Jerusalem. It's going to be a rocky future for a peace process between Israel and Palestine. In today's podcast, we open with commentary from Dr. Mads Gilbert. He is a Norwegian medical doctor who has been to the Gaza Strip many times to offer medical services, and he provides a vivid if chilling description of the damage caused by Israel's Operation Castlelet that occurred starting in December of 2008 and ended just before Barack Obama took the oath of office. And the damage, when you hear about it, is remarkable and intentional, in my view, on the part of Israel. You'll also hear an American Jew who describes himself as a former Zionist. Mark Braverman has spent time living in Israel, and he has become a fierce advocate for peace and justice for the Palestinians. I met him for the first time at the Sabeel Conference and was very impressed. It was not the first time I had met Jeff Halper. 
And he is an advocate, uh, an Israeli. Uh, he came from the United States, but he's an Israeli citizen and obviously a Jew. And he leads the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. And he offers, uh, in a kind of George Lakoff way, interesting ideas about the way Israel frames its perspective and sells it to American politicians and the American public, and some ideas for reframing that to provide honest discussion about Israel's persecution of the Palestinian people. Also on this podcast, Paul LaRudy returns. He's a founder of the Free Gaza Movement, now called the Free Palestinian Movement. And he has led the Seaborn attempts to break the Israeli blockade of Gaza, successfully uh, transiting boats from Cyprus to the Gaza Strip on more than one occasion. And he has some interesting new ideas about how to challenge the Israeli blockade. And you'll hear that upcoming in this podcast. And we'll close with Ms. Niha Masri. She is an American citizen, and she is a Muslim who wears a headscarf, and uh, she was born in Jerusalem. And she describes her experiences traveling in uh, the West Bank. She also was part of the Gaza Freedom March uh, uh, around New Year's of uh, 2010. And in her own uh, verbiage, which is very similar to many young Americans, and some of my older listeners might find it a little rambly or a little bit uh, uh, in, in the American vernacular, but it's a very authentic voice. And she describes in a, a powerful stream of consciousness uh, narrative what she experienced as she tried to go home. So we'll roll the uh, recordings here from the Sabeel Conference, and I encourage you to share this with uh, other people, spread it far and wide, and see if we can break the, uh, the lock that Israel has on uh, American political leaders and the messaging about the conflict that uh, favors them in almost every respect. We're talking now with Dr. Mads Gilbert. He is a medical doctor from Norway, and you've made several visits to Gaza, as I understand it, uh, both to observe and to offer medical aid. That's right. I've been working uh, in Gaza for the last 15 years for the Norwegian Palestine Committee and also as a teacher of uh, emergency medicine um, at the medical schools in, in Gaza. But basically, I am one of many uh, members from the Norwegian Solidarity Movement doing what we would call medical solidarity work, that is working with the Palestinians on their premises. Mm -hmm. They ask us to do certain jobs, like to train or to teach or to, to work with them in, in clinical work. I've been working quite a bit in the pre-hospital uh, uh, environment in Gaza during the two intifadas when I was in Beirut in 82 and 81 and uh, like many uh, friends of Palestine in Norway uh, we like to go there and, and to support them practically and then to bring back home the narrative of the Palestinians so that the Norwegian audience can uh, be more knowledgeable about the situation on the ground and ultimately that we can try to change the uh, 
the path of the Norwegian uh, politics, the Norwegian government. Now, despite the generalized uh, media blackout and uh, where there was coverage, it was heavily sanitized of Operation Cassolette, which was the brutal Israeli assault on Gaza that began in late December of 2008 and continued up until just before the inauguration of Barack Obama. They took advantage of that uh, lull in uh, American uh, government, the transition, uh, to employ American tactics, uh, a preemptive strike uh, on civilian populations and defined it as an attack on terrorism. And in the talk that you gave here at the Sabil conference, you showed some dramatic photographs. And while I have tried to uh, cover this as well as possible from uh, thousands of miles away, you shared some photographs uh, of children on the operating table uh, following amputations and some very graphic scenes. And I think it's very important for people to see the true impact because Israel also took advantage of the lack of media coverage. Uh, I was able to connect with a Palestinian named Sami Habib, uh, who was very brave and would take telephone calls anytime, day or night. But could you describe for my listeners uh, the, the dimensions of the human toll, both in lives and injuries? Well, it is in a way hard to uh, to sort of translate the numbers into the the uh, the realities for each one, each child, each each woman, each man, each family um, confronted with these tremendous injuries. Um, Dr. Eric Foss and myself, we were uh, working at Shifa Hospital for 12 days and nights during the first half of the Operation Cascled, and we were able to see firsthand uh, the large number of casualties dying and dead who came to Shifa. Uh, and um, I think the most shocking was to see the proportion of those injured who were children. The, the, the hospital was flooded with children, uh, dying, dead, amputated, injured, not injured, scared. And uh, you have to remember that all these children came from families who were already in a very difficult situation from the long-lasting siege. The uh, number of, of children suffering from anemia and from malnutrition is very high in Gaza as a result of the man-made hunger and starvation. And like, the tainted water supply. The tainted water supply and the lack of, of uh, preventive health care, the lack of sufficient food and the lack of security, which are all uh, elements and, and deliberate elements of the Israeli siege. So the backdrop before the attack was extremely worrisome. I was in Gaza in 2008 three times to teach, and I was very worried when I came back in October and November about the situation before I knew that the attack would come, of course. In Shifa, what we saw were a large number of amputations. Some of these amputations, we suspect, came from a new type of weapon that the U.S. Air Force have developed, which are called dense inert metal explosives, or dime weapons. Now, everybody has been talking about the phosphorus bombs and grenades, which are, to be honest, not that important. Number one, they are not illegal according to international law. Uh, you're not supposed to use them against uh, civilian targets, of course. Well, they're not supposed to be used as weapons. They're supposed to be used for lighting. For smoke screening and for lighting. 
frightening. So of course that was that was illegal. I'm not contesting that at all. But but behind that smokescreen on the debate of the phosphorus weapons remains the siege as a very very dramatic and very destructive weapon which they have applied for years without being punished. The Israelis and then these new weapons, uh, small diameter bombs or, or targeted killing bombs, which are extremely powerful, extremely uh, destructive for those who are within 10 meters of the explosion. And if you're a child, you're either ripped apart or you're, you're having your legs and arms ripped off. We had children that we had to amputate three out of four extremities. We had other children dying on the operating table from extensive amputation wounds, but no shrapnel wounds, but large burns, and, and it seems like somebody had cut off their legs and arms with a huge hatch. Uh, we could not save them, simply. And uh, of course it was uh, devastating to see all these completely innocent people being maimed, tortured and killed, I would say, for no other reason than being Palestinians living in Gaza, which by itself is not a crime. Now, I understand you're an anesthesiologist. Were you able to get the sedatives that you needed so that these amputations could be conducted properly, or were they often conducted without the benefit of anesthesia? Never, never, never. The Palestinians have a very high ethics, and, and thanks to the stores, the storehouses, and the supplies from the UN system and the Red Cross system, we had enough anesthetics and we had enough IV fluids. What Shifa was lacking was, you know, spare parts for the respiratory. It's a modern hospital. It's a 600-bed hospital with 400 doctors. Everybody thinks that maybe Dr. Eric and I were the only doctors. So how could we give interviews? Then the patients would be dying. We heard that several times. That is, of course, not right. Uh, the Palestinians are, they are very well educated. They have a high uh, um, proportion of the population have academic training and they have a large number of doctors and nurses and paramedics in Gaza. So that was not the problem. The problem was that the hospital system and, and the whole healthcare system was completely drained from these years of siege, lacking spare parts for the ventilators, lacking, uh, you know, chemicals for the laboratories, lacking uh, the third generation antibiotics, lacking maintenance of the hospital. The, the, you know, the elevators were barely working. They didn't have trolleys with wheels going around. They didn't have enough carpets. We had to place people, uh, you know, wounded on the floor. The light bulbs in the operating room lamps were gone. And uh, the hospital was run on two very old generators that broke down frequently, sometimes three, four times an hour, even more. And uh, while you're standing in a dark operating room and the light goes out, what do you do? They don't have headlights because it was part of the siege not to allow headlights in from the Israelis. So they were operating in the light of the display on the mobile phones. So you know, it's hard to understand. And, and, and even in addition to that, the hospitals did not have enough food. They not, did not have enough uh, fuel for the generators and um, did not have heating. And uh, Shifa Hospital, the surgical block, uh, lost all its windows, or rather they were bombed out by the Israelis when, when Israel bombed the, the hospital mosque on the second day of the attack. And in your talk you described that this was not the only medical facility that was targeted. A large number were uh, damaged or destroyed. Well, according to all these different reports that have came come out now, the uh, Arab League fact-finding mission, the Goldstone report, the Betzalim report, the Amnesty International report, somewhere between 40 and 50 health institutions were targeted, were shot at, 
or bombed or burnt. Uh, and of course, this is a huge violation of, of international law. Uh, 17 ambulances, I believe, were destroyed. Uh, paramedics and doctors were killed and injured. Uh, so nothing seemed to be sacred for the uh, Israeli attacking forces. Uh, they bombed the mosques. They bombed the UN schools that served as shelter for the civilians. Some 200 schools and kindergartens were destroyed or more? 280, according to the Goldstone report. And I was back in Gaza in August, September last year, and uh, nothing is rebuilt. Uh, all the money pledged to rebuild Gaza is sitting in the bank because Israel allows no construction material in. Not a nail, not a box of painting, not a tile for the roofs, not a window pane, nothing is allowed. Do they describe those as dual use? They could be weapons? Uh... They even, I think they even describe, I mean, th th there are almost hilarious descriptions of what are, uh, you know, potential uh, material for, for, for making weapons. And you may recall that uh, one of the U.S. congressmen, I think it was John Kerry, who discovered that the trucks on the border to Gaza, a large number of them were, were uh, filled with pasta. And he asked the Israeli authorities why the Palestinians could not have pasta, because they, he said, as he said, they can't make weapons from pasta. And Israeli, uh, his hosts said that, no, that's right, they can't make weapons from pasta, but we consider pasta luxury goods. And the Palestinians in Gaza are not supposed to have any luxury goods. So this is part of a very mean, very vicious, uh, very, very deliberate politics of, of making life in Gaza so unbearable that it's almost on the edge of, of, of killing the people. Yeah. Lack of food, lack of electricity, lack of clean water, lack of energy, lack of training, teaching, schooling, lack of rebuilding, lack of construction material, lack of, of, of money to, to survive. It seems like they want to strangulate the people's will to resist. They want to break the backbone of the Palestinian soul. And we know the disproportionality of the uh, assault uh, in terms of the number of people killed, 1,400 Palestinians and uh, at the most 14 Israelis, and some of those may have been uh, killed by so-called friendly fire. But the alarming statistic I heard from you was that of the wounded, some 5,400 identified, that fully 85% of those were civilians. 85 to 90%, 95% some are saying were civilians. Uh, these numbers vary a little bit across these different reports, but the large majority, and what we counted in Shifa Hospital was around 90, 95% were civilians. The official numbers, again, 50% of the wounded, the 5,400 wounded, were children below 18 and women, and a whole 28% of those 1,400 killed were children. And um, you're right, uh, 1,400, 1,455 killed, and 13 killed Israelis. That is, I underline, that is 13 too much, because not a single Israeli should get killed. They should have security and a safe life. But history shows us that a people occupying another people will never be safe. And the proportion of civilians among these 13 were three. The remaining 10 were soldiers, and half of them were killed by friendly fire. And among those three civilian Israelis killed, none were children. So out of everyone killed, there was one killed Israeli to 100 killed Palestinians. And this is not surprising. 
when you look at the disproportionality of the uh, military power used by the Israelis, and they would define anything in Gaza as a legitimate military target because anybody working in the governmental offices, in the police force, in uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in the public services would be defined as a Hamas person and as such uh, a target for Israel, which is of course completely uh, wrong, and it's uh, and it's against international law. So the numbers are are scary. And, and what I find even more scary is that the world, that is the leaders of the world, of the Western world, sat back and allowed Israel to go on for more than three weeks without stopping them, despite the fact that they knew the numbers day by day. At four o'clock every afternoon, the Israeli, the Palestinians, excuse me, health authorities released the numbers of killed and injured for that day. They had the satellite photos, they had their intelligence, they had our reports from Shifa, and yet they allowed the Israelis to finish. They didn't put pressure on them to stop. And uh, I think that the U.S. government, and unfortunately the administration of President Obama, bears a huge responsibility for these killings and these injured. And it makes their de uh, denial of the uh, Goldstone report even more contemptible. Absolutely. And it's, it's quite, uh, it's almost impossible to understand. I mean, the closest you can get to an autopsy, a scientific autopsy of the attack on Gaza is the Goldstone Report. It's almost 600 pages, it's 1,222 references. It is an, an extensive piece of, of, of uh, autopsy of, of this attack. And uh, bear in mind that Israel refused to cooperate. They refused to even talk to Goldstone. They denied the Goldstone Committee entrance to Israel. And, and so they came afterwards and blamed it for being one-sided. Well, and they've just been given another six months to uh, fashion a response. Mm -hmm. And it's a very bleak and, and weak response, I would say, uh, from what I've read. They cannot, and they are not, of course, not able to uh, to contest the allegations and the uh, the proofs. I would say the proofs that the Goldstone report uh, carries. And I, you know, don't believe me. Read it yourself. It's on the internet. Download it. It's in a PDF format. Read it yourself. And if you doubt the Goldstone, go to the West Bank. See for yourself. This occupation, these atrocities that are committed against Palestinian people, are historical. And anybody, anybody who, who shuts up, who keeps quiet, is complicit, in my opinion. And Europe, for one, have been, have been accused of keeping silent during important parts of history, like when the Nazis made just being a Jew an excuse or a reason for killing people. Well, more recently, Yugoslavia. And Yugoslavia. But let's let's just stick to 1938-45, uh, where uh, the silence and the lack of action actually made Europe quite complicit in the Holocaust, which was completely disastrous for all of us, for the Jewish people, but for all of us as a moral issue. But why should the Palestinians carry the burden of uh, whatever happened to, to our previous history? Uh, I think that all the silence surrounding the occupation of Palestine and the attack on Gaza from the politicians 
is comparable to the silence that surrounded the attacks on the Jewish people. Today it's enough to call somebody Hamas to kill them. We heard Israeli uh, official spokespersons for the military, for the army, when asked why they would bomb close to a UN school where there were many children, they would answer the international journalists that they were quote-unquote only Hamas children. That was, uh, and we have documented that in the book that we have written, which is called Eyes in Gaza, which will be um, released in May in uh, in the English uh, edition. Uh, and this was a journalist from the from the German magazine uh, Der Spiegel, which is a very renowned magazine. And this was during the bombing of the Al Fakura school in, in Gaza. And they said that they were only Hamas children. I mean, this is the same as when you when you when you put the yellow star on the on on on, on the shirt of a of a poor Jewish child in in, in the Warsaw ghetto. It's only a Jew. It's only Hamas. It's only a terrorist. It's only a Palestinian. We can't take this. This is an attack on the on the whole platform our civilization is resting on, and that is humanity. It's human rights. It's equal rights for all, and it's respect for humankind. Even if you're a man or a woman, or we disagree, or we fight, or we're even waging a war, there are certain rules to be obeyed, and Israel is violating all these rules, and it needs to come to an end. Dr. Mads Gilbert, nice to talk with you. Thank you for your testimony. Shukran jazilan, and good luck with your work. What the American opinion is doing will be decisive in the, in, in the historical path of this occupation. You have a huge challenge to change and to influence the politics of your government. Joining me now here at the Sabil conference is Mark Braverman. He is from the Washington, D.C. area. And Mark, I heard you talk yesterday about your own experience. You describe yourself as a former Zionist. You're an American Jew. You spent time living in Israel. And what opened your eyes or changed your views? Uh, two things, Peter. One is that I, I had lived in Israel and uh, was very connected to the state of Israel and my uh, Israeli Jewish family. I was really raised in that whole, uh, with that whole dream and in, in that whole culture. Um, I crossed the Green Line. I went over into um, Israeli-occupied Palestinian land in the West Bank, and what I saw horrified me, shocked me, really broke my heart as a as a Jewish person who had been raised in that Zionist dream, because what I saw was that the uh, the dream of a Jewish homeland had been built on the ruins and really on the necks of uh, a whole other people. Um, and it was not only that. When I met those people, I acknowledged them as my brothers and my sisters. I saw them not as the... Uh, Why don't you start with, you saw them as brothers and sisters. <laughs> I saw them as brothers and sisters. I realized that they were not the uh, the implacable haters of Israel that uh, we had all been taught to believe they were, but wonderful, patient, compassionate um, people, not bitter, not angry, uh, frustrated, but open, and, um, and I loved them, and uh, and it opened me to that. It also made me realize that. Uh, 
the most faithful and the most Jewish thing that I could do would be to work for justice for these people and for my Israeli Jewish family, brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles and aunts, who were in their own way very, very much victimized by the situation because they were isolated behind walls of hatred and racism. Why is it that other Jews and Israelis don't observe the same things, and how are they so hardened that they can tolerate the oppression of the Palestinians in their midst? And I'll just add to it that um, I understand that not every Israeli is a hardline Zionist, that there's a whole range, including some very extreme on, on the far right. And so to have a pluralistic society where you tolerate uh, various points of view and uh, uh, soft line to hard line, how can they kind of uh, characterize all Palestinians as Hamas fighters? Israeli society, for the most part, is fairly closed. Um, it started off as a traumatized population. This was a, a group of people who had come from Europe because they were being persecuted. Uh, and this was before the Holocaust. Um, and then after the Holocaust, of course, even more so, folks who were very, very traumatized and really felt that the world was, uh, was full of enemies. Um, the tragedy of that is that, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and my specialty is, is trauma. And uh, we know that the, uh, the best way, in fact, the only way to recover from trauma and from assault um, is to actively talk about it and then open yourself up to starting to find a way to trust the world again, you know, perhaps scarred, but open again. So if you take a rape victim or a disaster victim, you don't put them in a house, say, don't ever come out of here. We're going to arm, you know, we're going to surround you with guards and we're going to keep you safe and everybody out there is trying to kill you. This is not a way to recover. This is a way to stay in that same psychological state. And that is what has been done to the citizens to the state of Israel by their government. You know, governments do this. We see that here as well. So by and large, that's what's happened there. Um, there are Israelis uh, who are very uh, committed to, um, to peace and to connection and openness and to crossing over those walls, those literally those walls that have been built around them. They are a minority. Uh, they have no political power. Um, and uh, I frankly am pessimistic that they will have political power as long as our country, the United States, continues to be the banker and the lawyer for Israel on in the international scene. I mean, we are funding the apartheid structure that has been uh, put in place in historic Palestine. And it really goes beyond passive enabling. It's really an active complicity in the oppression that Israel imposes on the Palestinians, is it not? No, quite right. I mean, we are, we are really building that. Um, we are financing it to the tune of over $3 billion a year. And we are protecting Israel from any kind of international sanction um, uh, against the clear violations of international law that Israel is committing. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable that in the 21st century, you've got this kinds of human rights violations going on when you've got, you know, you literally have a situation that South Africans who visit say is worse than apartheid, separate roads 
towards land theft. Um, banter stands where Palestinians are basically imprisoned. Gaza is just one and the worst example of that. Well, in the active destruction of both the lifelines and the lifeblood uh, by ripping up orchards and olive trees, by uh, preventing medical supplies, reconstruction materials to come into Gaza to try to uh, build back after the destruction caused at the end of 2008. Uh, this is, is a very serious series of human rights violations, and we really have our fingerprints all over it. It's outrageous, and it's indefensible. Um, the problem is that the political barriers, the political obstacles to our own administration doing something about that are practically insurmountable now without uh, a grassroots effort to change the political wind and give our own president the backing he needs to change that. Obama gave the speech in Cairo, and there was a powerful line in there uh, uh, basically supporting the notion, not really going very deep, but the notion of a uh, separate state and human rights uh, for the Palestinians. And he appointed a special envoy uh, early in his presidency. But it doesn't appear to be a priority. And while there's been a little back and forth over the issues of settlements, uh, the Obama administration doesn't appear to be poised to take any kind of hard line against Israel to try to become uh, some semblance of an honest broker again. You can't afford it. Political cost is too high as things stand right now. Um, again, that's why there really needs to be a civil society movement uh, to really change the political wind and force the politicians to do what they already know needs to be done. I mean, Obama gets it. He knows what needs to be done. We've heard that from him in Cairo. He's been in Ramallah. We know that he understands what needs to happen. Uh, but just like LBJ said to the people who were leading the civil rights movement back in the 60s, you know, I agree with you. I know what needs to be done. Now make me do it. Um, and so how do we? We do it through uh, joining the Palestinian, uh, unified Palestinian call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against uh, the Israeli uh, state. Mm -hmm. You made a description in your talk yesterday. You were responding to some people who were engaging in interfaith dialogue. And you had some pretty strong language uh, describing the Zionists um, in America as vicious. How do we take on these forces? Uh, because dialogue doesn't seem to really be meaningful. Uh, and, you know, I, I do appreciate the value of sanctions and divestment, uh, but they are in the driver's seat. They're, they're strongly in control. APAC is a, a powerful lobby in Washington, and, uh, you know, politicians cross them at their peril. So what are your strategies for confronting uh, this, this very very powerful interest group that also enjoys uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, both implied and uh, overt support from the American media. Well, Peter, I believe that um, the churches in this country have enormous potential power to change that. The problem that I have with the uh, with what goes by the name of interface dialogue these days is that it really has uh, become a way to muzzle and um, squelch 
the natural activism of the church to work for social justice. I mean, you know, churches know what to do when they, when they see social injustice in this country and globally. Churches have been doing that for, you know, for hundreds of years. They know what to do about the situation in Palestine as well, but they are bullied and intimidated uh, at both personal and local and, and uh, institutional levels from taking that action. All a Jewish group has to say is, we think that uh, this is anti-Semitic or it makes us uncomfortable uh, and churches and pastors and uh, leaders of denominations back off. We're starting to see that change. This conference is an example of that. The talks that I have in churches uh, is an example of that, where I, as a Jewish person, come in and say, listen, if you really want to reconcile or love the Jewish people, then hold us accountable like anybody else. And if we won't be held accountable, and if the feedback you get is, you're wrong, you're doing wrong, this is anti-Semitic, it's not okay with us, then what you need to do is to very politely and respectfully say, we really disagree. Um, our faith and our consciences tell us to do this, and if it means that this relationship that we've developed with you has to be interrupted or disrupted or broken, we're really, really sorry about that, but we need to go on and do what we need to do. It's very painful for Christians to do that. They've put a lot of effort over the past 60 years since the Holocaust and building bridges and to trying to atone for two millennia of anti-Semitism. Um, but, you know, reconciling with the Jewish people was a good idea, but it didn't count on there being a rogue state out there which is responsible for these kinds of human rights injustices and for threatening world peace. And so my message to, uh, to the leaders of the churches and to the people in the churches is if you really want to be faithful to that great rabbi Jesus Christ who said, you know, follow me. Well, and you had a powerful comment that was new to me. You described Jesus as a Palestinian Jew living under an occupying force. Well, and I heard it from the people in Sibyl when I visited them in Jerusalem. I said, how do you deal with being so dispossessed? How do you deal with the fact that your home's been taken away and your children are leaving because of the occupation? And they said, we follow Jesus. He was a Palestinian Jew who lived under occupation. We follow his lead. And he says, you must resist. You must stay. You must nonviolently resist. Um, and that was very, very important for me to hear. It, it allowed me to understand that my faithfulness as a Jew was to work for justice in Palestine, for the sake of the Palestinian people, for the sake of the Jewish people living in that, in that land. Um, Jesus was, a, uh, was working for uh, social transformation against the evils of empire. That's what we're all doing now, Jews, Christians alike. This is, not an inter this is not an interfaith endeavor. This is an endeavor of all people of conscience to work for justice. You've recently published a book. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I called the book Fatal Embrace, Christians, Jews, and the Search for Peace in the Holy Land. The Fatal Embrace is what I've been describing. It is this um, disastrous combination of the still unresolved Jewish search for safety and the uh, Christian quest for atonement, which basically allows Jews to... Uh, uh, to pursue this quest for safety in this really self-destructive way. And in the book, I talk about my own journey, and uh, I describe my interactions with Christians, and we talk about theology in the book, about how uh, our theology needs to really direct itself toward universal justice, um, and that that trumps um, any desire for... Um, 
making up for two million two thousand years of uh, of anti-Semitism, or for the incalculable losses of the Holocaust. We have to mourn those losses. We have to mourn those sins on all sides, and now we have to look forward. Um, after the Second World War, a whole new theology grew up in Christianity called post-Holocaust theology, which is really devoted to trying to um, purge Christianity of its anti-Semitism, which was a good thing. But I think now what we need to look for and develop is a post-Nakba theology, a theology that takes into account uh, what's happening historically now, which is that the Jewish people are engaged in a disastrous, self-destructive um, project uh, of trying to build a national homeland by Jews for Jews uh, on the ruins of an indigenous culture, a culture which, if we could learn to share the land, would willingly and productively join with the Jewish newcomers uh, to build a, a, a wonderful society that would be part of the um, family of nations. You're giving a talk at a local bookstore here in Marin County, and uh, there was a circular that came out, and your point of view was completely sanitized. Uh, I hope that people will turn out. It's on the same evening as the Oscars, so you got a, a little bit of a competition there. Uh, but d did you advise them to sanitize that listing, or did they do that out of fear of offending people? I'm not sure, uh, Peter. Uh, when I sent them, they uh, they edited it down because it was too long. But in my blurb about the book, I didn't say that uh, that the book is. Uh, I said what I, I think I said was that it was uh, the fatal embrace was a combination of the Jewish quest for empowerment and the Christian uh, quest for atonement. I don't think there's anything in there that would indicate to people that um, I was opposed to the policies of the state of Israel. Um, so maybe I'm guilty of trying to sanitize the message. <laughs> but in fact, you know, the thing is, people want to put you in these boxes. They want to say, well, are you pro-Palestine, Palestinian or pro-Israel? And I reject both of those labels. Mm -hmm. I believe that I am uh, about as pro-Israel as you can get. Uh, I really want Israel, the citizens of the state of Israel, the people of the state of Israel, the culture that that country has developed, which is a wonderful, vibrant culture. I want it to survive. And it's going over a cliff right now. It's a very, very sick society. It's a militarized, closed, racist society. It's really horrible what's happened to that place and to my family. Um, it's got to change. It's got to transform. And it's not going to do that unless uh, it uh, takes a long, hard look at what it's doing. And basically, at this point, its government is forced to change its policies. Those are going to be hard times. It's a bitter pill for some people to swallow. But it's the only way. So uh, if you're pro-Israel, come to Book Passage tomorrow night. <laughs> Mark Braverman, I respect and admire your outspokenness and your really thoughtful analysis. Is there a website where people can find out more about you and the book? MarkBraverman.org or FatalEmbrace.org will get you to the same place. Please come and visit. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Peter. 
We're talking with Jeff Halper, who founded the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. He's an American Jew who's been living in Israel for quite some time now. And Jeff, you have some powerful comments about the framing of the issues in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and particularly the way that floats through the American media and political system. Mm -hmm. If you would, could you first uh, define your analysis of the Israeli talking points, the frame that they use to define their position, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about how that affects the uh, fight for human rights and justice for the mm -hmm. Palestinians. Well, the Israeli framing is, uh, like it should be, is soundbitey. It's something simple, compelling, short, it's one sentence. And that is that Israel is a Western democracy fighting Arab Muslim terrorism. And that's it. You have all the buzzwords. Um, <clears throat> it makes sense to people. It's very compelling. You, you know, even Glenn Beck can get it. And... Um, and and that's it. And then if you go on a little bit, you know, what or actually what's implied in it, you don't have to say it, is that Israel's the victim, Israel's a good guy, the Arabs are, are terrorists, you don't use the word Palestinian, and you don't use the word occupation. Occupation is never said. So in a sense that that framework just says it all and and both upfront and implied it absolutely um leads you to support Israeli policies. So let's deconstruct that simple sentence. Is Israel a Western-style democracy? So if we want to deconstruct, first of all, Israel claims to be a Western. Western. Um, so right away that, you know, says white, you know, and if there's a class of civilizations, we know what side we're on, you know, and the, and the Arabs are the darker peoples and so on. So there's a whole racial kind of colonialist sort of an undertone to this whole thing. Democracy, of course, Israel claims to be a democracy, but not at home. In Hebrew, in Israel, we call Israel a Jewish democracy. So in fact, it's not a democracy because a democracy, demos, means the people. A democracy is when a country belongs to its people. Whereas an ethnocracy, which is a, the term we use, is when a country belongs to one particular ethnic group. And Israel, you know, I mean, just have to look at the flag. Every day Israel says, we're a Jewish country, we belong to the Jewish people, and so it privileges Jews over Palestinians and others. I mean, there are many other non-Jews living in Israel, Russian immigrants, foreign workers, and others. It's about 30%, right? About 30% of, of Israeli citizens are not Jewish. So they're disenfranchised and excluded. So to continue the deconstruction then, um, you know, it's um, reducing everything to terrorism. I mean, there's no occupation involved. Um, uh, the whole idea that the Palestinians are a people, I mean, they're left out. The word Palestinian is left out. We don't use the word Palestinian. And so, in a sense, it just rolls kind of off your tongue. Arab Muslim terrorists. So and and the, right into pardon me, the, the perception of Arabs is that these are nomadic tribes who just happen to be in the way of the divine right of Israel to uh, live in its uh, biblical homeland. Yeah, or the slogan we use is that um, 
There are 22 Arab states. Let them go live in an Arab state. They don't have to be in our one little Jewish state. Uh, so, but you know, you don't say all that stuff um, because, again, the, the, each word in that sentence is so highly loaded and carries with it such positive or negative connotations that it locates, it positions Israel on a continuum with the United States, with civilized countries, against you know the dark terrorist peoples, and it becomes a self, um, a self um, explanatory statement. I mean, you just know where you are in terms of you support that, and you're and anything that you would say against that sentence would mean they'd say what you support terrorism. You see, so it's 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 like a trick, you know, because it locks you into a particular framing. And my argument is that if you argue from somebody else's framing, if they force on you the terminology and the issues and so on, then you come out defensive and weak, and you don't make much sense. Because now what do I have to do? I have to, I'm defensive now. I have to, if I want to argue against that sentence, it's as they're going to say to me, well, what do you support terrorism? And then I start hemming and hawing. Well, you know, and I just want to reframe in a way that I take control of the conversation rather than them. So then what is the positive frame in which to define and describe the aspirations of the Palestinian people? Well, it's not necessarily just the aspirations of the Palestinian people. It's how to reframe the conflict so that the Palestinian people's aspirations can be addressed, but also the uh, the wider conflict can be can be resolved. Um, so what I say is there's three elements to this reframing. First of all, there is an occupation. You take the word occupation and you put it up front. Because like the word terrorism, it, it means a lot. In other words, if, this, if terrorism is, is the bottom line of all of this, then the bad guys are the terrorists. Well, if occupation is the problem, then who's ever doing the occupation is the problem. And that's Israel. So it changes the whole dynamic of the conversation. The minute you say occupation, then uh, there's only one occupying power. And that, and there's a power differential here, and then Israel can be held accountable. So, so it's a very important term, which is why Israel doesn't use it. And if you're in a discussion, and the other party says, "Well, I don't want to use the word occupation," all right, then you know where they are, and it's very easy just to walk away from that. The second element is um, that there's not only an occupation, but it's proactive. It is not security. It's not terrorism it's not defensive it's proactive so that um, uh, everything Israel has done in the occupied territories building settlements the crazy root of the wall uh, the uprooting of olive and fruit trees house demolitions land expropriations and economic closure everything Israel does uh, the military attacks are um, are proactive from the point of view that they're not defensive, but they, they, there's a proactive claim to the country. Would you accept a friendly amendment? Because proactive seems a little benign to me. Mm -hmm. It's aggression. It's bare-knuckled aggression. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, the framing can be played with. This isn't a sacred text. <laughs> you can call it aggression. I, I, sometimes, you know, though, 
I mean, maybe I spent too much time in Britain. Sometimes in, Americans like to hit the nail on the head, which is which is good sometimes. Britons like understatement. Mm-hmm. Because then you can say what you're saying and you're not ra- rousing, raising hackles among people that you're trying to... So, you know what? It's it both ways could work. I, I guess I go the understatement way. And the third element is... Um, is that um, that Israel's not a victim. You see, it, because this is implied in the whole thing. It's just defending itself. That Israel, in fact, is um, the strong party. There's a power issue here. Um, you know, that Israel is... Um, uh, you know, and then I, I, you know, Israel has one of the strongest armies in the world. It's the fourth largest nuclear power in the world. It's the third largest arms exporter. So, um, you know, the economy is is three times larger than Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon put together. So, if we can begin to change uh, the image of Israel from being the, this little victim to being the uh, the bully in a sense. Um, to being the strong party, then we open uh, the uh, possibility of holding Israel accountable for its actions. The way it's able to avoid accountability in international law, like with the Goldstone Report, is again by appealing to the fact that we're the victim and you can't hold a victim responsible. And isn't that meme um, just ingrained and they exploit the uh, tragic history of the Holocaust? And so that when one challenges the frame of Israel as victim, then it's a quick step to anti-Semitism and not uh, very far from Holocaust denial. No, that's right. In other words, um, Israel uses the Holocaust and uses the history of Jewish persecution, you know, in a very cynical way. Uh, because, again, um, to be a victim is a very powerful place to be. You can't hold the victim responsible. So, in a sense, um, and, and what's very interesting about this is it's anti-Zionist. I mean, the, the, actually, the thrust of the Zionist movement was against the idea of Jews being the victims. The whole idea of Zionism was that Jews take their own destiny in their hands. And in fact, for many years, into the 1960s, there was no Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel. Because in the Zionist perspective, the Holocaust was an embarrassment. It was a shame. Jews went to the slaughter passively like sheep. So this whole idea that really began more with Begin, I think, of um, using the Holocaust, in a sense co-opting the Holocaust for a right-wing agenda to support the occupation, and then casting the Jews as victims, uh, not only is cynical by itself and distortive of, uh, of Jewish history, but it's against the very idea of Zionism, which was that we're not going to be victims anymore. So, you know, you have this, there's a very interesting story in the Iron Wall, uh, by Avi Shlaim about this when um, after the Six Day War Ezra Weitzman was a commander of the Air Force he had to go meet Lyndon Johnson to ask for more airplanes from the United States to replenish the planes uh, you know the, the, the Air Force and he went to Levi Eshkol the Prime Minister he said what can I tell uh, Johnson I mean we, we, we've always presented ourselves as the victims as these, this little country and here we go out and defeat the whole Arab world in six days what, how can I sell our need for more weapons 
And Levi Eshkol told him in, in Yiddish, he said, you can present us as poor little Samson. So that whole uh, thing between, you know, that Israel um, doesn't want to be really seen as a strong state, I think, because that would open the door for accountability. And from my perspective, and I'm certainly not alone, the Palestinians are the current victims. Uh, Israel uses terrorism because they use massive military might against civilian populations. Yet you can't uh, get people to hear mm. those points because they're brainwashed may be a strong term, but they're uh, s severely conditioned right. to accept those terms from Israel's perspective. Well, reframing and deconstruction, which are like two parallel processes, are very important. In other words, use of language here is crucial. When we, you know, there, there is no internationally accepted definition of terrorist at all. Amnesty International doesn't even use that term. Um, and uh, when you say terrorist, what you're, what you're implying are non-state actors. In other words, uh, states are never considered terrorist. So that um, Al-Qaeda and the insurgents are the terrorists in Iraq, and that's understood. You go out in the street and everybody knows that. The Americans and their allies have killed close to a million Iraqi civilians. Via our Defense Department. That's right. And well, Defense Department is another is another term. But you see that scene is collateral damage. And it gets even more more sophisticated because for example, one of the things that the United States argues about terrorism, what makes them a terrorist and not us, that they got from Netanyahu is this idea that the terrorism it depends on intention. So they're terrorists, the Al-Qaeda and so on, Hamas, because they want to kill civilians. Whereas we're not terrorists, even though we kill millions of innocent people, because we don't have the intention. They're collateral damage. and that, In other words, you do acrobatics here in terms of, of terminology, but the word terrorism is such a loaded term, that, and it excludes states, that it, gets, it lets states off the hook. So that we need another language, and that's why I urge in, in the reframing a human rights-based language. So, for example, in human rights, you would say it is forbidden to attack or kill or harm civilians, period. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a freedom fighter. I don't care if you're Jewish, if you're Hamas, if you're American, if you're a state, a non-state actor. You cannot do that. And that way, rights language is inclusive. Now, states are just as culpable as non-state actors. And once you do that, then you get a real good grip on what you might call state terrorism. Now, the human rights element is one of, uh, I counted, six uh, elements that you described mm -hmm. as essential to a one- or two-state solution. Let me get you to comment briefly on the others, binational expression. Well, this is something, and this is something that actually I'm asserting because um, it's getting lost a little bit in our, in our, as the Palestinian voice gets stronger, which is good, and as Israel becomes more demonized, which in a way is good, uh, and the occupation and so on, the, the baby that's, that's in danger of getting thrown out with the bathwater is the idea that there is an Israeli people. 
you know, I mean, there is a Hebrew-speaking uh, Jewish, sort of Jewish, but more Israeli nation there. I mean, this is a binational reality. And sometimes you hear people say, well, Jews either should go back to Russia. Well, you know, I didn't come from Russia. And, and, or that, or that uh, Jews are just a religious group. And they can live, you know, you have Palestinian Christians, you have Palestinian Muslims, you have Palestinian Jews. But Jews aren't just a, uh, a religious group. They are, at least in the sense of being Israeli today, that part of the Jewish people is a national group. So I constantly, you know, use the word binational. I talk about there's two nations, and one can't be, while at the same time, one can't be subsumed to the other. They're also not ethnic groups like the United States. And the problem with, um, with just one democratic state idea is that it's, it's ignoring the national element, and I think that's a problem. The other uh, next one is uh, economic viability for the Palestinians. That's right. Well, uh, you know, the, what it, where Israel is going is towards apartheid. And Israel is saying, all right, you want a two-state solution? I'll give you a two-state solution. Here, here's a Palestinian state, but it has no economic viability and no real sovereignty. It doesn't have control of its water. It doesn't have control of its borders. It doesn't have control of its movement of the Jerusalem area, which is the economic core of any Palestinian state. Uh, it has no control of its airspace, its communication sphere. In other words, it's a cage, basically. So well, and also, also economically, uh, Israel controls the flow of foreign exchange. That's right, in, in, in all senses. In other words, that's why if you talk about economic viability, you can't get to an apartheid situation. Uh, refugee issues need to be resolved. Well, this is a crucial uh, uh, issue. More than half the Palestinians are refugees. And uh, they're either living in camps or they're living in exile outside of their country and their descendants and so on. So that you can't ignore the refugee issue. What Israel is always saying is, okay, we'll make peace with you, but only on condition that you give up the right of return. Well, first of all, you can't give up a right. A right is a right. Um, but in addition to that, you know, there's also symbolic aspects, like acknowledging what we've done to the Palestinians. Over That's symbolically very important for people. So, in addition to getting into some kind of an agreement about how many come back, what compensation there is, resettlement, and so on, there has to be an acknowledgement of the right of return and an acknowledgement of what Israel's done to the Palestinians before this key issue is resolved. And you're not going to succeed in anything unless you really address this refugee issue head on. And the last two issues are connected, a regional approach and security for all parties. Yeah, well, essentially what I'm saying is that all the uh, major issues facing the Israelis and Palestinians are regional in scope. Israel-Palestine is too small a unit to cram a solution into. If you're talking about security, that's a regional issue. You talk about economic development is regional. In other words, even if there was a perfect peace between Israelis and Palestinians, and Israel and Palestine were, were flourishing, and every, to live like that in a region that's poor and autocratic would be unstable. It wouldn't be good for anybody. You have to have regional, even economic development. Water is regional. You know, there's no water in Israel-Palestine, basically. It comes from Lebanon, Syria, ultimately Turkey. Um, refugees. In other words, you've got some of the major issues 
that are crucial for resolving the issue are in fact regional in nature rather than simply local. Jeff Halper, I think you're kind of brilliant. Ah, oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> the Israeli Committee Against uh, House Demolitions. That was not a denial. <laughs> Say that again. That was not a denial. Your website, please. <laughs> Our website is uh, www.icahd.org. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you much for having me. Paul LaRudy joins me now from the Free Gaza Movement, and I understand there's now a Free Palestine Movement, and I want to hear about that. Paul has led uh, several uh, journeys, voyages, uh, to challenge the blockade of Gaza from the sea, and you've been successful on a number of occasions now. Tell us what your plans are for the coming year for uh, any sea-based uh, efforts to break the blockade. Thanks, Peter. Um, the the Free Palestine Movement, the first voyages, uh, spawned a multitude of similar efforts, including, for example, the Viva Palestina with George Galloway and the Code Pink efforts, and finally the Gaza Freedom March, uh, and also some imitator uh, boats, ships, one from Lebanon, one from Libya, and so forth. There is the, the Free Gaza Movement is sending a flotilla of ships. Um, it's now scheduled for the end of April or the first week of May, uh, including uh, uh, some Turkish NGOs, which is a very hopeful sign. Um, this is another effort by, by sea. I'm not personally involved heavily with, with that effort, um, but we are, uh, we're now, the, all of these various uh, branchings of the, the uh, Free Gaza movement and its successors include the Free Palestine movement, which uh, is the, the California nonprofit, which was the Free Gaza Movement, and it's now renamed itself to distinguish itself. Um, and we have some other crazy ideas. So um, you're chuckling because you know what it's about. And uh, that is, if uh, if the Free Gaza Movement was successful by sea, and some of the attempts by land by land were also successful, well, there, there's another route, and that's by air. So. And actually, this is quite feasible. The, we, can, we can take the right kind of aircraft into Gaza uh, without going through Egyptian airspace or Israeli airspace, just like with the boats. Do you, do you have an aircraft carrier? We don't need an aircraft carrier. You have a squadron of hang gliders? Um, we don't need that either, and I'm not that athletic. <laughs> um, but what we have in mind is a, uh, an aircraft that will do short takeoff and landing uh, and can ran, land on rough surfaces. Uh, th I mean, this happens around the world. There are dirt airstrips everywhere. and Crop dusters? Well, uh, we're not going to be that small, but uh, no, we're we're looking at an aircraft that might take 32 people uh, on board. But the Israelis have kindly prepared a place for us to land. Uh, they, uh, they cleared the settlements out, and they left behind these beautiful, the best roads in Gaza, nice and straight. Uh, they would make great landing strips, and they were kind enough to clear the obstacles on the side of the road as well by, by destroying the, the, the structures there. Mm -hmm. So this is ideal, but even if we don't have those, we, we could 
could, all you have to do is to take a bulldozer out and, and clear some dirt, uh, uh, flat dirt uh, area, and we can land there too. Now, this is a little audacious because Israel has a lot of American-made uh, F-14, F-16, and I think F-18 fighters. Um, actually, uh, we think we can elude them. Um, and the way we elude them is by flying very slowly. They can't fly slowly, you understand. Um, so, but uh, seriously, I, uh, people are concerned that we'll get shot out of the sky. I don't see how that would happen. Uh, it, it's the same with the boats. You remember that uh, one of our, uh, the, the boats, the Dignity, was rammed. And... No boat was ever rammed after that happened. Why? Because uh, even CNN carried the ramming of, uh, of the boat with, uh, with their reporter on board and with Cynthia McKinney on board. Uh, Israel really doesn't like to repeat that kind of thing, and nobody was hurt. Nobody was hurt in that one. Imagine if a, a plane load uh, uh, with uh, Desmond Tutu on board and, and, uh, and journalists uh, uh, are on board and all this sort of thing. Imagine they, they shoot down something like that. And once again, this is not like the shooting down of the Libyan airliner or anything like this. this all, we're going to focus attention on what we're doing. We're going to uh, invite the world to watch every step of the way exactly what we're doing. So there's, there can be no mistake that this is, this is an alien force that's, that's coming in there. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, to give you every advantage, I won't ask you for more details, but I hope you will keep us surprised. And uh, when you announce it so that the world can watch, uh, I'd like to be an observer. You did a good job uh, until the Israelis jammed it, uh, providing us with real-time uh, GPS location of the various boats that you've used on your uh, transit to Gaza. So I hope you'll do the same with an aircraft, and I'd like to do my part to uh, to make people uh, you know make it accessible for as many people as possible to observe well you're an important part of our plan because we we do need to get the word out to as many people as possible uh, what we're doing if you like I'll tell you about another crazy idea this crazy idea is that on a given date we haven't selected the date yet more than a hundred Palestinians with uh, North American or European nationalities and passports will all fly to Israel, to Tel Aviv, on, uh, on commercial flights. And they will basically be seeking to, to see their ancestral homes, their, their, the homes that, uh, that belong to them legally, but that they've never actually seen uh, themselves. And their, uh, their message is, you know, we, this is our home. We know we can't live there right now, but we hope to one day. And for the time being, all we want to do is to see it. Kind of checking on the tenants? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, what, what Israel does in these situations is to stop them and send them back on the next flight if they can. But we're going to resist that. We're going to do nonviolent resistance to, against deportation. We'll have a team of lawyers who will represent everyone. Uh, we'll have a committee on the ground that, that will be expecting us. Uh, we're also going to have maybe a few um, celebrities who will also fly in, and these will be people that are, are equally unwelcome, uh, such as, let's say, 
Galloway, George Galloway, uh, Cynthia McKinney, Maria McGuire, and um, so this will also help to to uh, draw attention to to what's happening there. Mm -hmm. So anyway. I applaud your resourcefulness, Paul. <laughs> well, we, uh, we try to specialize in crazy ideas. And as you know, sometimes th these ideas actually work. So if people want to find out more, you have a new website at freepalestinemovement.org. That's it. Yes, please. And we need your help. Keep fighting for peace. Thanks, Peter. We're joined by Naha Masri, and I heard a little bit of uh, your talk at a workshop yesterday. And I wonder if you would describe for us, you're an American of Palestinian origin, and I see you in a headscarf here, your traditional garb, and you were describing your efforts as an American to pass through Israeli checkpoints. And I'd like you to share that with my listeners, please. Of course. Um, well, I went to the Gaza Freedom March. I got into Gaza and I came out in the same next day. I actually took a, a bus, overnight bus to Taba, which is um, Taba Portland. It's the land between um, um, between Israel, Elat, and Taba, Egypt, which is a land port crossing. And as soon as they saw me wearing a headscarf, they pulled me to the side. Racism, Zionism at their finest. I had a Jewish friend with me and three other white American friends. The three white friends were ahead of us, so they got to pass. My Jewish friend and I were talking as we were walking across. They got me, they told me to, to sit down, put my luggage down. My friend, who's Jewish, he's like, are you guys together? They asked us. And I, I, couldn't, I didn't answer because I told him, if you're with me, they're going to give you hassle. <laughs> so you better not say that you're with me. He's like, oh, it's okay, I'll pretend I'm your boyfriend. And he held my hand. I was like, dude, you're going to put us in two different rooms. Don't even try. So we got held for a few hours, two hours. As soon as they found, they took me after um, my three American friends who passed came back in, and they said, "Oh, we're with her." And they told them the same thing. They held them, interrogated them. After they thought like we're not that suspicious, they let us go through. Right when they wanted to like stamp the, my passport with the visa, they took me to a different room. They're like, they searched my name up, all everything. They're like, you have Palestinian ID, you cannot cross. And I was like, can I cross my American passport? They're like. No, you're a Palestinian. You're going to be treated like Palestinian. So I got rejected. I had to leave back to Egypt. From Egypt, I took a boat to Jordan. From Jordan, I went to, to Amman. From Amman to the West Bank. I picked another friend up, to another American friend. And, and Ali, my friend who came with me to Egypt, decided to come back. She didn't want to leave me alone. That's so, Ali from Code Pink. She's Ali G. Yeah, Ali Galinas from Code Pink. So uh, we wanted to cross West Bank. We crossed the Jordanian border, and the West Bank, though it's you know it's a Palestinian territory, it's controlled by Jordan. Jordanian borders controlled controlled by the Jordanians. Then you have Israel controlling the Palestinian borders, and then you have another Palestinian checkpoint. So it's like three checkpoints to enter like this piece of land that is supposed to be only controlled by the Jordanians and Palestinians, but yeah, Israel doesn't allow for that. They they have full control over the West Bank, which is why the economy sucks and sucks in the West Bank. Everything goes all the amount of money or the economy gets flushed into Israel. So, I mean, regardless, I went off topic. But, um, so, I, again, got held up at the borders. This time, not because of my headscarf, because that was the, for the Palestinian entering, so they were used to people with headscarf. But this time, it was because I'm, I had an American passport, but I did not have a Palestinian passport, but I had a Palestinian ID. So, it was a very complicated situation for them. They didn't know what to do with me. They held me again for six 
six hours. They told me, denied me entry three times. They're like, you can't enter the country. And I was like, I've never been here for 10 years. I was born in Jerusalem. Like, it's my country. Like, you're going to let me. I was like, can I enter? He's like, you have to enter through your on your Palestinian passport. I'm like, I don't have a Palestinian passport. But can I enter with the, my American passport? He's like, you're, he held my American passport and he's like, in his hand, a pie. And he's like, honey, well, he didn't say honey, but like, he's like, this does not mean anything to us. This is nothing. You're a Palestinian. We're going to treat you like a Palestinian. I was completely shocked. I was like, um, okay, this is my identity for all my life, though. I was born in Jerusalem. I had it, like, because my dad lived in New York for the past 30 years, since 1970. And I've, I've had it since I was born, my American citizenship. You're telling me this that identified me for the rest, like, for all my life. You're telling me that it doesn't mean anything. And then, and then hold on. Okay, it doesn't mean anything to you guys. What about being a Palestinian? What's wrong with that? Does that mean if I'm Palestinian, I'm going to be treated in less inferior, dehumanized, demoralized treatment just because I'm Palestinian? I was like, this is completely ridiculous. And then at the end, they rejected me another time, so twice. So I finally had to like resort to sweet-talking him. And I was like, you know what? I don't know why we all just have to keep fighting each other. We're like brothers and sisters. And if I was in your place and then you were in my place, I would totally like treat you on a diff completely different level. Like, do you see me as a security threat to you or anything? All I want to see is like visit where I was born. He's like, unfortunately, I can probably try to get you into the West Bank. He did feel like he, I got a really nice IDF guard, luckily. And probably because I was also an American, he felt like a little bit more, you know, easier to let me pass than if you were Palestinian because I saw a Palestinian who was wearing fully covered, like a full on, like a baya, like a covered all the way to her, like, you know, it was completely like loose clothing. Get stripped. What, what we think of as a burqa? I think it was a burqa without the, the face covering. She got strip searched completely. And I was like, damn, like that's so dehumorizing. It was like, I could not just believe what I was seeing. I was like, oh my God. Like, I can't believe this is just, I saw, I witnessed this. In the end, after like I was talking to him and I was like, all right, he's like, I'm going to try to get you in. Again, after three hours of negotiations, he talked to like the upper guys. They printed a baby picture of myself. A, literally a baby picture. They had it in their system with my Palestinian ID. And they said, if you enter the country, you can't come on your American passport. You would have to make a Palestinian passport. Not only that, because you can't come on it if you want to like leave after four days because it takes 14 days to electronically actually, you know, punch in. So you got to get another permission slip to leave the country and a Palestinian ID. I was like, I was, I was just really like, I was really eager to, to go in. So I finally, I was like, I accept, just let me in. They're like, and they printed this permission slip to enter the country and finally did. Um, now, he said you can't visit, obviously, Israel, which is, now Jerusalem is a part of Israel, they, so they took over it. Um, and I, I was born there, so I really wanted to see that place. I can, like, completely smell it. I was there, I was like, I can totally feel it. I can smell it, though I haven't been here in, like, 10, 11 years. I can totally feel it. Like, I really want to see it. Um, so I decided, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. I came here all the way this far. I'm not going to give up. I went through Colombia, which is right between Iran and Jerusalem. It's a checkpoint. And I don't know what to tell you. That just I have a lot of pictures that I've been putting on my PowerPoint presentations, but to describe it, it's basically like dogs in cages. Even dogs are treated better in the U.S. Literally, dogs are treated so much better. 
three cages a person has to go in. If you're, I, I kid you not, if you're obese, there's no way for you to be able to fit through these cages. I was, I'm, I'm a very small petite woman. I'm like five feet, really small, tiny, and I felt suffocated. Like I felt really claustrophobic being in those cages. It was completely closed off from every angle, including in the top. Like it was completely caged, three cages. You enter one, they close the door, and they let five people pass to another cage. They, they, they seal the door shut, like electronically, into another. Those cage. are called Sally ports. I have no idea what they're called, but I was like, I've never seen anything in my whole entire life like that. And it felt so dehumanized. So Ali and Fatima, they're both my American friends. The idea for so ill-tempered, they're very, very rude. They're very mean. They had no respect whatsoever for us. They were yelling at us. So one of my friends, Fatima, she kept, and for the, she, the machine kept on going off. The machine detector, the metal detector kept on going off, and she didn't know what was going on. So she kept on trying over and over again three times, and she got yelled at. She kept on yelling. She's like, what should I do? I took everything off. Like, I have, like, all my jewelry, I took off my purse, everything. I have nothing, no metal on me, no belt, nothing. She took even her shoes off. She's like, she started yelling in Hebrew and Arabic, something we couldn't even understand. And then Ali showed her, Ali is white, she showed her ID and I mean the passport with a visa on, she was able to go in. Fatima, she started crying. She's like, just tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. <laughs> she was like being nice. She's like, tell me what to do. And then as soon as I walked in, I, I didn't, luckily I didn't like set the metal detector off, but I didn't have a visa on my passport for simply like, when you're Palestinian, they just stamp your American passport with big stamp with your Palestinian ID number. And I was like, oh, I don't have a visa. She's like, well, you can't go in. She started yelling, go back. Like, And then she figuratively held her hands up, clamped her fingers together as figuratively choking me and she's like go back yelling at me like in Hebrew and in Arabic and I was like wow I just like felt crying because like I was like I was born here I was like this close and now you're denying me because of a stupid visa and then if I was Jewish I can pass for simply because I'm not Jewish though so I'm born here and you're not you're probably not born here or your parents if, if you are born here your parents are not born here but I was born here my great my father was born here my great grandparents were born here. God knows how many generations were born here, yet I'm not allowed to even be here. But anyone from all over the world who's Jewish can be here. I just felt like so demoralized after all that treatment to be rejected again. Um, I have cousins and in, in, I, I went back, I was like, Ali, Fatima, you guys all came this far. I mean, I've seen it, I was born here, I've seen it like 10 years ago, we just go in. Like, I'll just go back, you guys go, go through. Luckily, my cousin was on the other side who has a Jerusalem resident ID. He came back, he got them, we went to a different checkpoint. This time, literally, our heart stopped at that checkpoint. It's usually for like Jews and like Jerusalem residents, and you drive through instead of actually, you know, being held like ages. So it was a lot better treatment. We just held our passports and we just showed our front page. Luckily, they did not ask for a visa, so I was able to sneak in. I mean, this is, I felt suffocated by only being there for four days, and I'm, because I have an American citizen, I'm in like American citizenship. I'm at a somewhat privileged level. They, they don't really like, you know, I, I guess consider it anything. They do see me as 
Palestinian that kind of exists, though we get a lot of from the Zionist groups right here that Palestinians don't exist and that Arabs are dogs and all that. Well, and, and it's even beneath the characterization of a second-class, not citizen, but a second-class person. It's not even like, a, I mean, Israelis who have, uh, Israeli Arabs who's Palestinians and have Israeli passports are treated as second-class citizens, but Palestinians who don't have a, an Israeli passport, they're treated as nothing, no human rights whatsoever, nothing. Like, they have no rights whatsoever. They completely, if if really, if they, if they can get away with it, they can completely massacre every single Palestinian. But they know that they will hurt their image really bad, so they do it slowly. That's what they do. They actually sterilize Ethiopian women, so they don't actually have babies, from what I heard in, in Israel. They ask for birth control pills, they give them pills that can sterilize them, or like degrowth, you know, de like lower their birth, um, their eggs and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's completely ridiculous over there. I mean, you say it's not an apartheid state, but believe it or not, once you see it, it walks like an occupation, it talks like an occupation, it shoots like an occupation. I don't know what else could it be. It's an occupation. The walls, the different roads, segregation, Palestinian, you have a special road, and Jewish, you have a special road. Um, schools, um, if you're an Israeli, Jewish, you have, you can attend any school in, in Israel with a number list, like countless spots. If you're a Palestinian Israeli who have the Palestinian citizenship, those who had the courage to stay in and, uh, and survive the 1948 Nakba, which is I call a massacre, when they raised 480 villages, they got they got the, the Israeli citizenship. They, Israel doesn't really want them there. They actually have limited spots because they're Palestinians. Though they can be Christian or Muslim, so they're Palestinians. They're still Palestinians. So a lot of the programs only accept like few number, like four or five, regardless. Even if they get higher score um, than the Jews, they still don't get accepted. So a lot of them, yeah. No, uh, one more question. Will you go back? Uh, of course. Regardless, it was totally worth it. Like it's my country. I was born there. I mean, regardless of what Israel puts me through, I'm not gonna like just say I'm gonna give up. I, I mean, yeah, I get some my privilege, more privileged treatment, though I do get discriminated against here, even my own country in the U.S. Um, because you know, white people get the full privilege rights, and if you're a colored person, you don't. Um, but regardless, I, I would definitely go back, regardless of whatever they treatment they. Maybe not to visit, because I, I know. I mean, maybe not to live there, because I know I can't handle like the discrimination and the suffocation they put under um, for the Palestinians. But maybe I can actually get acclimated to it and then get used to it. I, I, I don't know, but from what I know, I cannot handle it because I felt suffocated within only the four days. But definitely, I will, I will definitely try my best to go visit whenever I can, whenever I have the money, whenever it, you know it's feasible for me. Yeah. So, Thanks for telling me your story. Of course, no problem. I thank you for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show, and I welcome your comments. Email peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling under